Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. Ever wonder how things have changed in the last couple years versus before as a landlord trying to find tenants? The game has definitely changed. And that is what we talk about today with Hart Tugman from Rent Panda. We have a great conversation. And guys, things are different. If you're feeling it out there and you've been a landlord for a while, things are changing. It is important to adapt. And the way to find tenants like before and incentives were never a thing before. And as you'll hear in this podcast, they are slowly becoming more customary. If you are having trouble placing tenants and you had no issues before, you are not alone. There is some changes. There are some changes out there that have been affecting us in Ontario and especially in the secondary and tertiary market. So you're going to hear all about that today. And don't forget, we also have in-person events every single month. Check that out at Midterm Rental Properties. Go to the event section and come out in person. Come say hi. It would be great to have you. We do these in Burlington once a month. On that note, let's bring in Hart from Rent Panda and understand what is happening in the rental markets today. Hart, welcome back. How are you? I'm awesome. How are you? Good, good. You know, before we started recording, we we're talking about how it's changed quite a bit being a landlord in Ontario in 2023, 2024. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we do, what is new and exciting since the last time you were on the show? Well, super new and exciting, not too much. You know, the, the nature of the market has changed a little bit, but our day-to-day -day doesn't a ton. You know, we're leasing out properties across Ontario. We're doing a lot more property management these days because I think a lot of people are kind of fed up being, you know, landlords. They want to be investors. So we're doing a lot more of that. And, you know, we're introducing some new, cool, innovative tools to help on the management side. And then, yeah, just enjoying the wintertime, trying to get out there, get outside, have some work-life balance, have that with our team. You know, mental health is important. And I think I we've all been grinding for a couple of years now. So just making sure that uh, everyone feels a little bit more balanced than maybe the last 12 months. For sure. Now you have a new baby, I believe, as well, since, since you were last on. Yeah, I don't remember exactly when it was, but he would have either been absolutely newborn or non-existent, but he's nine months old. Yeah, you may hear him wake up from a nap in the background, but he's awesome. It's it's really enjoyable being a dad. He's an easy kid, thankfully, just happy. And uh, yeah, it puts into perspective that balance thing that I was talking about. You know, five o'clock every day, I walk in the room and he's just happy to see me. So it's a fun time. Awesome, awesome. Love that. All right. So let's talk about, obviously, you know, and I don't know how long you've been in this business for, but I've been in this business for 10 years. When I first started, it was such a different game back then. And we'll talk about landlording specifically, not necessarily mm. strategies per se, but from, you know, when we first started buying properties, the rents easily actually covered entire house mortgages and yeah. interest and taxes and everything. And you still came out cash flowing back then. And then over the years, obviously, we had to pivot and, and do some, you know, conversions with multifamily and that kind of stuff to make it make sense. Mm -hmm. But the rents have changed quite a bit. I think the, and this is what I, where, you know, your expertise will definitely come in handy to share what you've learned, but tenants aren't the same anymore. They're not the same anymore. The LTB is still a crapshoot and it's, it's not getting any better. But what are your thoughts? Like, what are, what is happening 
you know, let's just say since the pandemic and since, you know, things started reopening again, what are you seeing? Because there's definitely some big changes. Yeah, for sure. It's a big question to unpack, I would say. But we actually ran a rent report looking back at all of 2023 and then got a little bit of insight into the fact that 2023 was a very difficult year for landlords. And we pulled five years of data instead of just one year of data and found that last year was actually the worst recorded rental year. And I'll talk about some factors of that in the last five years. And that's not to say that investing in landlording isn't possible anymore, um, but by the standard metrics, it has changed dramatically. So rent is going up. We all know that, you know, mm -hmm. the CBC and every news source has been you know, on the topic of rent increases and how crazy they are. But the reality is, is when you look at the rent increases across 2023 in Ontario, their rent is high, but the rent increase has actually slowed quite dramatically to just around 3.3%. And inflation, you know, if you trust any of the numbers out there, is like 3.4% recorded right now. It's probably a lot higher. So to your point, being a landlord has been more difficult, primarily because, you know, rent increases as much as we can do them, even with 10 turnover, haven't really kept pace with inflation. So not only has the cost of building places and renovating places and, you know, hiring out tenant placement services or property managers all gone up, your cost of living has gone up as a human being and the tenant's cost of living has gone up dramatically, but things are still not keeping pace. And so everyone is having an affordability crisis, essentially, and placing tenants has become more difficult and the choice of tenants has become a lot more slim, I would say. So we've got some facts that we can dive into in a little bit, but quantitatively, the quality of a tenant has actually dropped across the board in 2023, especially. You know, rent increases have slowed. In Q4 of last year, rent actually went down in most Ontario markets across the board. And there's issues of market saturation and whatnot, but we can dive into kind of each one. But I would say over the last year, it's been the hardest year in the last five. And when landlords start to look at themselves as investors and evaluating new properties, the lens of how to evaluate a property needs to change. And like you said, you know, strategies have changed. But even with existing strategies, if you, you know, know and love the burr, your numbers need to change from a burr perspective in terms of you know, longer vacancy costs to allocate. Like last year, vacancy periods increased by 16%, which is substantial. You know, even in a tight market like Toronto, the average time to lease was about 14 days. That went up to 18 days. May not be super substantial when you're evaluating a property, but that's just medians and averages and whatnot. So you need to keep in mind where you're investing, what your numbers look like, and you know, just have a little bit more of a, a conservative nature coming out of 2023, that's for sure. Yeah. Now you've mentioned Ontario, there's lots of submarkets. Do you think that yeah. this is also relevant and applicable in the rest of Canada from what you're seeing in terms of stats and longer fill times, rents not really increasing as much? Are you seeing that across the country? Yeah, for sure. And when we look at the numbers across the board, really, we look at tier one markets. So Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, that's essentially it. And then we look at tier two markets. So we've got you know, Hamilton, even like Edmonton and Calgary out east when you're out in, you know, St. John and all the eastern provinces, the same trends are happening across the tiers of cities. And the issue is even more acute in tier three cities. So when we talk about tier three cities, those are, you know, around 80 to 120,000 people, typically and historically, you know, blue collar working towns that have had less investment over the last, you know, 10 years. 
But in the last couple of years, they've gotten a lot of investment. And I know you know well and well, and we know well and well from an Ontario perspective. But when you look at, you know, even a city like Regina, or you go out and you get to BC, which is a little bit of a different beast, <laughs> but you get into some of the smaller markets in BC, the same issues are creeping up where a lot of investors have put a lot of money into those markets to try and develop the rental ecosystem there. And tenants just can't afford the increased rents. The tenant pool is drying up because those who could afford those brand new, nicely renovated places have found their places and they're not moving because rents just keep you know going up and up and up. So the same trend is happening across the board. And as an investor, we always look at it as, you know, am I in a tier one city, a tier two city, and a tier three city? And, you know, we just need to look at how we evaluate those properties a little bit differently. Yeah, I know that's really good insight. Now, obviously, you know, even just from our experience with renting in the current market in, in Welland and Hamilton, mm -hmm. um, you know, in those areas, because we, we have a lot of units coming to market and more continuing, it definitely feels like a different market. It feels like it is harder to get the right tenants, harder to get the price as well versus even two years ago. And I think people have less disposable income than they used to. And like you said, I don't think they're moving because if they're moving, you know, to get something of, I would say, the same amount is going to cost or like the same amount of square footage or the same space yep. is going to cost them significantly more. That's what we're seeing, I think, is a lot of people not moving or staying put. And then the people that are coming I don't know about you, but I'm seeing a lot of like like international students still coming and applying, people from out of town, obviously like splits and divorces, that kind of stuff. But, you know, if somebody got a place a couple of years ago, likely they're staying put unless, you know, there's a specific reason to move. Yep. So what about like vacancy specifics, right? Like across Ontario, it was two, you know, sub 2% for the longest time. Has that changed at all? Yes and no. So I will say, I will agree with all of the, the skeptics out there at, you know, major banks and government establishments that essentially CMHC can't count. And apologies mm -hmm. to anyone at CMHC who is, is listening in. But CMHC has an issue with the way that they report on the rental housing industry. It's part of the reason why eight years ago, we thought that building a tech platform was such a great idea because the acquisition of data for this, you know, secondary rental market is so important. You know, the secondary rental market and the landlords who house everyone account for 68 to 70% of all rental housing in the country. And when we say the secondary rental market, CMHC defines that as anything not purpose-built rentals of three units or more. And I actually dove into the CMHC report this year. They define it as three units or more, but they actually don't report on data unless there's four, they had an interesting term for it, but like essentially four units. So if they had four established and distinguishable pieces of data coming back on one unit or one property, then they would count it. So the underreporting of single family homes, you know, bungalows that were converted into duplexes, triplexes is incredibly rampant. And so when you look at the vacancy rates to, to answer your question, you know, yes, CMHC said the vacancy rates are dropping and we're under 1.5%, you know, especially in these tier one markets. When we look at the data that we've pulled, especially in these tier two markets and tier three markets, we're up at four, five, 6% vacancy rates. And I think when you talk to property managers and investors in those markets, you hear them sitting on vacancy for 30 days, 60 days, even 90 days is not completely abnormal, especially for those who are willing to wait for the right tenant. You know, anyone can place any tenant, but if you're willing to wait 
for that perfect tenant, then, you know, you are going to have to wait a long period of time. So vacancy rates aren't as CMHC reported them. Yes, in Toronto, they may be reported as 1.5%. But if you take with that grain of salt that they're not reporting on any single family home, basement unit, duplex or triplex in Toronto, obviously that accounts for a massive amount of housing that they just have no idea what's going on. So I would say as an investor, caution towards, you know, being more, more conservative. And, and then when it comes to quality of tenant, we actually did a little analysis with single key that we're partnered with and looked at the quality of tenant across 2023 and the quality of tenant has, has definitively dropped. So the data, if I take a look at it is the average credit rating went from 687 to 675. So not a massive difference, but when you look at that in terms of a median number, it's not, you know, not substantial. <laughs> the crazy numbers, bankruptcies went from 2.4% to 4.5%. So clearly people are having trouble affording what lifestyle they've gotten into. And then the same thing from a collections perspective, they went from 10% to 18% collections. And that's across all of the applications that us and single key see. Oh, so, okay. So, so just yeah. to, because I want to just verify. So the stats yeah. come from the applications that are coming in, not the population as a whole or like. Exactly. Yeah. So this is an evaluation of active rental rentals and renters, essentially. So we're looking at all of the applications that come in and, and there was an analysis of about four to 5,000 applications and looking at the median credit scores, you know, collections and bankruptcies across the board and also the rent to income ratios. You know, those have been shifting quite dramatically over the last five years or so. You know, it used to be the age old 30% rent to income and then it creeped up to 35 and then we see 40. And then if you're in Toronto, you know, it's not unusual to see 50% rent to income and people are just spending more on a roof over their head. So it's the reality of the market that we're in right now. Yeah. And to be honest, like if anything, I think it's going to get worse for a bit in terms of landlords. Well, I think it's going to get worse in general, probably for a bit, but I think even just landlords yeah. like leaving the market as a whole right now in the grand scheme of things and in the long, you know, in the long run, we're going to have less housing in my opinion, as people are just starting to sell because, you know, and you probably speak to a lot of investors right now. They're trying to figure out, okay, do I do I rent these units? And then if they're rented and then they're with the higher rates, like, does it even make sense to keep it? Or, you know, do they sell it and, and just get back into, you know, something different yeah. of investment? But so, I mean, obviously the, you know, the income is not where it used to be for a lot of renters. The amount of rents, you know, is still high mm -hmm. in comparison what are maybe some strategies that you've implemented or that you're seeing others implement to try to fill those vacancies? And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hi, I'm Dahlia, founder of Streetwise Mortgages. If you have a new construction condo or a new construction house that is coming up for closing, you want to pay a close attention to the message that I'm sharing with you today because I will be sharing with you some exciting news about a new product that will help you tap into the equity of the property on the day of closing. So here's how it works. Uh, one of the banks just came up with this new product. It's being introduced to the broker channel exclusively to a small group of brokers, uh, Streetwise included. And the way it works is the following. Uh, let's say you've purchased a new construction property at $500,000 and it's appraising today at $600,000. Without this product, if you had gone to a bank or to a lender 
other than private lenders, they would have lent you the mortgage based on the lower of the purchase price and the appraised value. So if it's been purchased at 500 and it's worth 600, the bank would have lent you on the $500,000. And let's say you've given the builder $80,000. This means that at the time of closing, you needed to show the lender the remaining $20,000 to make up for the 20% down if it's a rental. And you would have gotten a mortgage for $400,000. Under this new product, here is what it would look like. If it's appraising at $600,000, then the new mortgage would be at $480,000. You've given the builder $80,000, and what's owing to the builder is $420,000, right? So you're getting a $480,000 mortgage. The builder gets $420,000, so you're not going to need to show the lender an additional down payment because the loan covers for that. And then on the day of closing, you're going to get a cashback at the lawyer's office of $60,000. You can then use that cashback to help you with closing costs. Like a lot of these properties come with HST and you have to upfront the bill before you get a rebate. So this product will help you cover your HST and you may actually walk away with some extra money as well. Great product to consider. 80% loan to value. 30-year amortization and bank rates. So if you've got a new construction property coming up for closing, reach out to us. We're happy to help you tap into this product. Email us at info at streetwisemortgages.com. And now back to the show. It's a really good question. And I would say the creative strategies are still in their infancy <laughs> because you know Q1, Q2 of last year wasn't too bad. But as we got into Q3 and Q4, things got really sour. Q4 was absolutely terrible. And, you know, I'd share my screen and bring up all these graphs. But essentially, when we looked at every single market, the number of new listings on the market continued to spike. You know, investors were turning over these renovated units, dropping new units on the market. And the number of total leased properties was plummeting, like down to 2020 levels. So there was an extreme problem with finding quality tenants and actually placing them. But then at the same time, the median rents weren't moving. And so people just were saying, hey, I'm not willing to rent below X dollars and I'm just going to wait on it. And then as, as you pointed out, you know, they wait a month, two months, three months and they go, well, I'm not going to drop my price because it doesn't make sense from a numbers perspective. I'm not going to put a bad tenant in that property. You know, I'm not open to placing, you know, four people in a two bedroom unit, which is, you know, what people can afford these days and what you know, cultural norms are with new immigrants. And so I'm just going to sell the property. And we had a lot of landlords doing that. But, you know, the reality was when you're trying to fill that vacancy, you know, as a leasing specialist and a team of leasing specialists, we're pushing as hard as we can to figure out different ways to fill those units. And typically it's, you know, price drops because price is going to be the biggest determining factor. And so the first batch of strategies is pricing related, but knowing that people are going for refis and people are going you know, in larger buildings for their CMHC. So keeping that rent roll high, but being able to drop the price. So we see a lot of, you know, first month's rent discounts, two month rent discounts, three month rent discounts. You obviously don't want to go past that because then it's the actual rent. We've seen incentives like, you know, Visa gift cards or like free, you know, PS5s and things like that. If you're going after certain demographics, 
I would say th those are kind of like the, the price related things. We've even gone to the scope of, you know, placing an advertisement out for a dollar. And this is like my most hated thing back in the day, but post a property for a dollar and say, offer, you know, what price you can afford. And you see the offers coming in similar to the buy and sell market around what the market average should be. Cause people know, you know, I'm not going to waste my time just offering whatever I'm going to offer what I think market rent is. So we've been able to place a couple properties like that with those incentives. Mm -hmm. In markets like Toronto, we've been very aggressive with incentives. You know, if you're renting out a $4,500 a month, three bedroom townhouse, you can put a $1,500 first month's rent discount in there. You can say, you know, three quarters of your rent is discounted in the first two months just to get someone quality through the door. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at some of the smaller markets, those incentives can't be as extreme. And so they're not as motivational for those tenants. So giving someone, you know, $100 off in rent, it allows you to then advertise the place $100 less and get more initial traction. Um, but it's not going to move a property that wasn't moving elsewhere. So a lot of the conversations are with the investor to educate them on how the state of the market has changed. And, you know, the demographic that they're looking for may not be out there anymore. And so shifting that strategy a little bit. The other thing is, for any investor or landlord out there that isn't posting across multiple platforms, like gone are the days of, I used to you know, post on Kijiji and I'm just going to post on Kijiji. <laughs> when we're doing leasing, we post out across RentPanda, Facebook Marketplace, local Facebook groups, Kijiji, Rentals.ca, Zumper, PadMapper, ViewIt. Like you have to be everywhere because that one quality tenant may be anywhere mm -hmm. and they may be on, you know, searching on Airbnb and then be convinced into a long-term rental because it makes sense. And so... You have to look at a multi-platform advertising strategy. And then the last thing is really just hustle. So we always say to landlords, you know, if you're not willing to put the work in yourself, you have to hire someone that is. And nothing bad about realtors, but typically realtors are focused on buying and selling their homes. And they may do, do you a favor and, you know, rent yours out if you bought the property with them. And so if you're advertising a property, you have to be on when the tenants are on, right? Tenants are scrolling on their phone at 930 at night just hitting that, is it still available on Facebook, right? And so if you're online at 9.30 at night, getting back to people at the same time that they're engaging, then they're going to convert a lot better. You know, you're going to catch them. You're not going to have the drop-off rate that you would experience if you wait 48 hours and then respond to everyone. So we always kind of try and educate landlords to think like you're selling a product mm -hmm. and understand your customer because that's what you have. You know, you've got a product in a house, whether it's a rental or not, and your customer is that, that end user, that tenant. So it's the same as selling, you know, a car or a running shoe. It's just a house. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I want to unpack that you talked. I mean, you, you mentioned a lot of things. So just, yeah. just a few things, though, and, and one comment before I, I go through some questions for you. But I would have never thought two years ago we would be in the situation where it's almost reverse. Right now we're doing incentives. Now we're doing discounts. We're like, you know, I've always done month to month, except for recently, where like 12 months leases actually make sense now because you don't want them to just, you know, randomly walk away without penalties and stuff like that for new, for newly renovated units that we're doing. And so that's definitely been a shift. Again, it probably won't last forever, but, you know, that is the shift now. We're, we're very similar to probably some places in the U.S. where they were offering incentives to try to get renters yep. in. Okay, so there's one thing that you mentioned, and I don't know this. So, like, thank you for educating me on this. But you mentioned that if it's three months on a discount, it becomes lawful rent. I thought it was just like you have to do something different. So it doesn't become lawful rent right from the start, but you would know more than I would on that. How does that work? Correct. Yeah. It, there's a little bit of a gray area, I would okay. say. 
and cases at the LTB that have kind of pushed through some odd case law. But yeah, essentially, if you can't go into a lease and say, hey, the lawful rent is 3000 bucks a month, and I'm going to give you an 11-month rent discount of $2,000 a month for that entire time, because if on the 12th month you turn around and say, great, now you owe me 3000 bucks, the tenant actually has case to not pay you $3,000, continue with what is considered lawful rent. And then if you file an N4, you know, they would let you go through that filing and you would lose at the LTB. So the three month line is kind of that general standard of what is considered lawful rent. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do things within that realm. I would say there's a common sense practice of, you know, you can't be extreme and then essentially open up yourself to liability from a tenant perspective to say, hey, this is gouging or there's something fishy going on here. So you wouldn't want to go in and say rent is $6,000 a month or $10,000 a month, but it's a dollar for the first three months, right? (laughs) Yeah. Wouldn't it make more sense though to collect all the money up front and then just do an e-transfer back or like gift cards back instead? Collect all of the rent money up front? Yeah. So let's just say it was $3,000, but you're giving them $1,000 off for like the first three months. Wouldn't it make more sense to collect on the first of the month, the 3000 and then on the seventh of the month or whatever it is that you decide to just send back 1000 Yeah. So I would kind of say that you probably get into the game of who's trusting who. Okay. And tenants may just be like, I don't trust you to give me back that money. And then to your point about affordability beforehand, we're seeing more and more tenants who just can't afford those types of payments. And so a lot of people are living, you know, paycheck to paycheck these days. And you see less of like the, hey, I'll give you three months up front or six months up front. It's Mm -hmm. typically only new immigrants who have money coming over from another country. And we're seeing like when we do bank checks, so we can do open bank checks now to see 12 months of payment history through a tenant's accounts. We see much lower bank balances than we used to. People aren't sitting with, you know, 15, $20,000 in their account anymore. They're like redlining every month and, and going paycheck to paycheck. So that would kind of be my one pushback with that model is like, Mm -hmm. we don't see tenants with lots of cash ready. And more and more these days, even the idea of giving first and last upon lease signing, more people are pushing out to say, hey, I'll give you the last month's rent deposit, which is legally the only thing that you can accept, Mm -hmm. but it's just kind of industry practice to take both and saying, hey, can I give you first month's rent the day before move in or even my, you know, my next pay period if you're signing at least 60 days out. So everything Mm -hmm. is tighter these days. And to your point, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. I think we're going to go through a tough Q1 and Q2, maybe. And hopefully as we get into the summertime, you know, things will ease a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. But the, you know, as landlords, we kind of have to put ourselves in the tenant's shoes and say things are tough for them too, right? Affordability is tough and paying high rents for the same thing that you could get for 40% less, you know, two or three years ago is actually affecting those who work, you know, middle-income jobs hardworking, mm-hmm. blue-collared families. But yeah, it's, it's changed. So so how would you suggest that somebody do it then? Like if it's not the 3000 and then 1000 back, like what is your practice? And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey there, it's Jamel Ramtula, your go-to realtor for all things real estate in Southern Ontario. Are you ready for another hot tip to take your investments to the next level? Here it is. Here, consider looking into distressed properties. These can be a gold mine for savvy investors who are willing to put in some sweat equity. With the right vision and a bit of elbow grease, you can turn a neglected property into a beautiful home or a profitable rental. And guess what? I have just the resources to help you with that. Contact me for a 15-minute consultation and let's explore the exciting opportunities that await you in a world of distressed properties. Don't wait. 
Reach out now at jamilramtula.com, J-A-M-I-L-R-A-H-E-M as in Mary, T-U-L-A.com. Let's make your real estate dreams a reality. And now back to the show. So typically we want to make sure that we're not misleading and we would allocate about a 10% rent discount when per month for one, two, and sometimes, but rarely three months. So is that and on like a separate thing. contract? Is that on the standard lease? Like, is that like how, like walk us through like, the actual logistics? Oh yeah. Yeah. So it would be on the standard lease. Everything is above board. So if you're renting out a place for 1800 bucks, you could give them a two month rent discount for 180 bucks a month. And the real benefit of that is that if you're advertising at 1800 bucks a month and everyone else is around that range, you would put up your advertisement at, you know, 1620. And you would very clearly note at the very top of the advertisement that yes, the advertised price is 1620, but that is including first and second month's rent discounts. After the first two months, your full lawful rent is $1,800 a month. And in your pre-screening, you would have people accept the fact and like click an actual box to say, I read and understand that the lawful rent is $1,800 a month. Because you also don't want to waste your time with people thinking that 1620 is the rent. And so that's typically the way that we do it. We put it on the lease, we advertise it very clearly, and you know we're not false advertising. We are mm -hmm. playing with essentially the marketplace you know, algorithms and dynamics, because yeah. as a tenant, if my budget is 1800, you know, I'm using that little slider bar and I'm probably looking at 1850 and 1750, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. maybe 1700. And so you're just going to get more volume at the lower price. And especially with Facebook, higher volume equates to higher um, engagement. And I think we talked about this last time, actually, so people can go back to like how to get high engagement on posts. Mm -hmm. um, but engagement breeds engagement, especially on Facebook. So you want to Right. Respond quick, get lots of people, and then you'll get more people. So is it just, sorry, I just want to wrap my brain around this. Yeah. So on the Ontario standard lease, like the main forms, I don't think there is space to write this, right? So you would just do it as an addendum? No, the, there is space to write a rent oh, discount. Okay. Yeah, in the Ontario standard lease. I would probably spell it out very clearly in an addendum also. Got it. Yeah, um, because I think you can yeah. just check it, right? Like it's like a checkbox or something if there's a rent discount. Yeah, so there's a checkbox and then there's a, there's a what lines. is the rent discount. Okay. But the general rule with the Ontario Standard Lease is like there's lots of, you know, margin room. And mm -hmm. so sometimes, you know, building a lease appendix, which you should have anyways, can be a pain. So sometimes we just put little addendums kind of as elements like text boxes beside that if you need to explain it. And we've seen it at the LTV where essentially a, a little text box on the Ontario Standard Lease with an additional clause is, or clarification of an existing clause mm -hmm. um, is essentially considered the same as a, a true, um, you know, appendix. Okay. Or work with a company like Rent Panda to yeah. get all your stuff done properly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you mentioned advertising and you mentioned Kijiji, Facebook's, you know, view it, et cetera, et cetera. Where, let's say, does your majority of leads come from that end up turning into tenants? It's all market dependent, I would say. So the tip here is where, wherever your property is, really understand the top marketplaces in that market. For us, Facebook Marketplace still brings in the large majority of volume and the um, largest percentage of closed deals. So Marketplace and gone are the days of, you know, bad people are on Marketplace. Mm. It's just more people. So it's more to sift through. Mm. And then recently, actually, Rentals.ca and Kijiji have been closing the gap. So for quite a few years, we found them to be kind of useless. 
especially Kijiji. It kind of died off. It was the old Vicon, but they've done a good job at pushing their marketplace, doing a lot of advertising, building better promotional packages. So they've started to creep up. And then we also have the ability to post out to the MLS now. And so if you're looking at a city like Toronto, you want to make sure that you're on the MLS. If you're advertising in Kingston, you know, there's like seven properties a month that lease out on the MLS. So there's no point in being there. So it's really market dependent. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I know we've had some good luck with the MLS as well. And the fact that you guys are now able to do it, I think is huge too, because now you're able to do the whole gamut of opportunities, not, you know, just everything except for the MLS. Because there are going to be some people that, you know, and, and oftentimes these are business professionals that may not have the time to like, decipher through everything and they're just like asking their friend who's a realtor or whichever realtor they want to use and then they're getting help that way and so you know sometimes there's some great tenants that end up coming from the mls which Hmm. i would say before two years ago i never really even bothered it was literally just kijiji and facebook (laughs) and and predominantly in the markets that i was at kijiji back then but things have changed and i think you said i think facebook now has become, again, for most markets, not everything, but has become the predominant way of finding tenants, getting that traction. Yeah. So obviously you're seeing, uh, you know, a lot more, I think, difficulty in, in renters coming out and markets have definitely changed. Are you seeing anything positive? I mean, we talked about a lot of the doom and gloom, but what positive things are you seeing potentially happening for 2024? Yeah, lots of opportunity for those that understand the smaller markets that they're operating in or where there is market opportunity. So we're seeing, like you mentioned beforehand, a lot of opportunity in student rentals. There's a lot of students still coming. And yes, the government passed some new legislation and is pushing, you know, the the universities in particular and colleges to offer housing to students. Yeah. Can we talk about how, like, how is that going to work? How are they going to find housing? Are they going to build it themselves or are they going to have to like just identify investors like us? So what we're pushing for, and and as an investor myself in student rentals, what we're pushing for is a collaboration between the private sector and the public sector, Mm -hmm. because they're not going to be able to build all the housing themselves. What it'll do in the short term is it'll limit the number of students coming through the door, especially in first year. You know, we were seeing cohorts of university and college students that were made up of a third of international students. And there was already a housing crisis beforehand. And you know, the volume of people coming in were incredibly large. And then you had a lot of landlords who were taking advantage of that, you know, putting six to eight people in a two bedroom house because they could get a lot more money for it. So it's always the bad apples that ruin it for everyone else. Mm -hmm. But I think the long-term solution has to be one where the universities kind of push for government reform from a a legislative perspective on the zoning front, because building student housing is very difficult in a lot of cities. And then I think if you look at you know, the zoning for small boarding houses and the opportunities for investors to jump into that, which is what I'm personally looking at. That's an, a big opportunity, but it needs to be started at the government level. You know, the zoning laws need to change to allow for a broader range of neighborhoods to allow for this type of housing. And then, you know, in the short term, people are really scared. They think, you know, the number of new students coming to the market is going to be halved, but they forget about the four years of, you know, students that have been enrolled. <laughs> Mm-hmm. that are still going to require housing and master students and PhD students. So I think by the time kind of the current cohort runs out of need for student housing, not only are they going to they gonna dump into the standard rental housing sector, so that's going to cause that problem there, but there's going to be some changes that allow for 
these students to be housed. And I would expect the number of applications to rise back up, maybe not to like COVID levels where universities were just trying to make a lot of their money back, but it'll rise back up. So student housing is a massive opportunity. Obviously, the the addition of extra units is is still kind of the thing that everyone is talking about, whether it's garden suites or basement units or any kind of ADU. So we're seeing a lot of our clientele pushing, you know, those extra added units and adding value in that way. And those units are going for a premium for sure. You know, garden suites are the hottest thing uh, on the tenant side as well. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing a lot of movement actually back to major markets like Toronto, where, you know, a garden suite tacked on to a renovated, you know, duplex into a triplex and you've got your four unit property. We're seeing Toronto properties actually cash flowing, which mm-hmm. is kind of crazy to see after the last, you know, five years essentially in the city. So people that were investing in, you know, Peterborough and well in Trenton and whatnot are actually coming back to the city. So there's opportunity to increase density there to have profitable investments that are coupled with, you know, cash flowing opportunities coupled with high levels of appreciation like Toronto is likely to see in the continued future. And then the last thing is just that there still are really good tenants out there. And the trend that we were seeing in Q4 and at the start of Q1 is starting to change a little bit. So we always look at, you know, the past year to try and predict the future year. And if we look at it on a month by month basis, even the last two weeks has been much better than the two weeks prior, which were much better than the two weeks prior. So we're hoping that with our graphs, you know, seeing that massive decline in the doom and gloom, we're seeing that slight little uptick. And the hope is that as we enter into the spring market, that uptick starts to, you know, properly rebound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a uh, great point there. So students, student rentals, ADUs, and looking potentially back into Toronto as, you know, potential good, solid markets for the long term that may now potentially cash flow a little bit. Yeah. Um, so do you know if they, because they had a, like they had a quota of like 900,000 students or whatever, like, is it after that or are they just kiboshing that number? For no, that? so that's, that's where that kind of legislation or push still exists, mm-hmm. but my prediction is it's not going to affect the volume of student housing quite as dramatically as you know every news source was saying in the first five days mm-hmm. and that story out rather quickly because there is still that four-year cohort of students that is rolling through from a student housing perspective and i would imagine you know the university and college lobbyists are going to do a good job over the next two years of pushing the government and mm-hmm. saying you know, they may not have the housing right now, but they've put in place a plan for the housing. So they should start to relieve, you know, the number of applicants that can be put through. So the number is there, but I don't think it's going to be as dramatic or create, you know, the actual ripple effect that everyone thought on day one. Um, And I think just the pace of that story burnt out is kind of going to show you that those who are invested in student rentals, you know, haven't thrown up their arms. There's no protests happening. You know, the universities and colleges haven't done, you know, major pushes to protest this because I don't think there's going to be a massive impact. Interesting. Speaking yes. of Toronto, and then we'll wrap up. And I don't know if you've, and again, like this is, you know, I just read something about it the other day. Yep. No more uh, about it, but something about uh, like opening up the opportunity for more rooming houses or being able to rent by room. Have you heard of any, anything like that? I, I probably read the same article. I haven't seen any legislative changes or proposals, but yeah, I, I've just read that article on the student housing front. You know, I hope that it's a trend that continues across 
most major markets because I think alleviating or, or pulling back the boarding house laws and bylaws that exist will help density in existing structures. Because typically as investors, we've always looked at these houses and you have to chop them up to make the numbers work, right? It's mm -hmm. the bungalows into duplexes, it's the single family homes into triplexes with the garden suite on the back. But, you know, we were personally looking at a century home that could have had, you know, nine bedrooms, 10 bedrooms, 12 bedrooms, and chopping it up was just cost prohibitive. Mm -hmm. You don't want to touch anything structural with that type of house, you know, and it was cost prohibitive essentially. So I think right. the, the loosening of those laws will allow these houses that are just going to be torn down and turned into, you know, mm -hmm. typical suburban mega mansions. It'll allow investors to come in and put in place quality boarding houses mm -hmm. and house the population that needs it, whether it's students or new immigrants or just young professionals, mm -hmm. without having to invest as much as they have in the past with true conversions or or just push towards, you know, the teardown and rebuilds. Yeah. And now we just have to make sure that insurance and finance, all the banks and the lenders are yeah. also on board because that's going to be the other side of things, right? It's like one thing for them to like open it up, but then you've got to find the lender that's going to finance it. And then yeah, you've got to make sure. sure that it matches with, you know, the insurance and the re insurance requirements, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. but, you know, it's at, at some point, something's got to give. And I think that there is a need for that. Like you said, there's a lot of people that are finishing school and they may not want to go back to live with their parents, but they may not want to be in a student rental anymore and probably can't anyways. So that's like a nice, easy transition. They're probably young yeah. professionals. Could be very interesting. Hard. And I think the, yeah. oh, sorry. My, my last bit on that is I think, you know, the money will always dictate it. And so if there is a push towards permitting boarding houses and or having a licensing program where there's opportunity for the government to make money off of it, it will likely be pushed through a lot faster. And I think from a cash flow perspective, there's an opportunity there. Like I would get licensed as a boarding house provider. hundred um, percent. I would too. And because like if you had like nine or 12 rooms, even think about seniors. Yep. Perfect. Perfect example. But, you know, again, like. We go where the money is, right? And the government goes where the <laughs> agrees with exactly. whatever happens if it makes them money, I suppose. <laughs> yep, exactly. Awesome. Hart, just quickly, what do you offer with Rent Panda if somebody is interested in your offerings? For sure. So Rent Panda is essentially a rental company that supports small landlords through their entire journey. So for those who are still in the DIY phase, doing everything themselves, we offer software to help place and manage tenants, most of it for free. Then for those that are looking to be a little bit more passive or have trouble placing tenants, we offer leasing or tenant placement services across all of Ontario. And then for those true passive landlords, we offer flat rate property management, again, across Ontario, as low as $39 or $49 a month for larger multifamily, up to $99 a month for single family homes and everything in between. And then we also just provide you know education, coaching, paralegal services, and stewardship of your rental journey. So it's not very transactional. It's all relationship-based and we like to see people through their entire life cycle. Okay, awesome. And where and what's the best way to connect with you and your team? Yeah, just rentpanda.ca. As easy as it can be. Awesome, awesome. Hart, thanks for being on the show. It was a pleasure having you on. My pleasure. Excited to be back again. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larvey. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.